So I smoked some stuff earlier today that uh, I was able to see into the future and I saw a newspaper headline from 2064. There was a baseball team called the Portland Pickles that won the World Series. But I also <laughs> saw uh, that the they called them mini metas. It was all the uh, the meta companies that got broken up into smaller pieces, kind of like how they called the Ma Bell baby bells when they split them up after the Sherman Act. But they, they reformed back in 64, guys. So I'm real sorry to hear that. But but if you happen to be around, make sure you put some money on the Portland Pickles because they won the World Series in 2064. <laughs> <laughs> I, love I love it. Hello, comrades. It's episode 123 of This Machine Kills, your premium episode for this week. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. So, some nice news finally hitting, uh, uh, coming out of the FTC. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll get into it, but Lena Khan has initiated a lawsuit to, to block the merger of, of big semiconductor firms, NVIDIA and ARM, um, and so we thought now is the perfect time to revisit the thought of Khan. Uh, you know, we did some episodes a while back ago um, looking at the, the academic work of Lena Khan, who's the, the chair of the Federal Trade Commission, you know, big time thinker, uh, scholar around antitrust, uh, looking at reviving old ideas of antitrust and updating them for big tech, but also just monopolies in general. Very good stuff coming out of the FTC, very good stuff coming out of Lena Khan's work. And so, you know, it's it's due time for us to revisit it. You know, also, you know, we'll get into this NVIDIA ARM merger, um, but, you know, there's also a number of other things. The New Yorker, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, had a really big and generally glowing profile of Lena Khan that we that we'll discuss a little bit uh, as well. Friends of the show from the AI Now Institute, um, Meredith Whitaker, Amba Koch, and Sarah Myers West, all working at the AI Now Institute, were recently named as um, senior advisors on AI to the chair of the FTC. So reporting and working directly with Lena Khan about, you know, how does how do the FTC, how does the U.S. regulatory uh, arm target? and approach big tech, you know, emerging technologies, artificial intelligence, data systems, right? Very, very good stuff. I mean, literally could not ask for anything better than some than people like Meredith Amba and Sarah Myers West to be working directly with Lena Khan. And you know, it's just it's just more of the good shit coming out of Khan's FTC, where it's just like, damn, if if that were me. I'd be doing the same exact stuff. I have very little to complain about. 
Yeah, <laughs> right, right. You know, yeah, I think that this is also, you know, exciting because uh, it is, I think, you know, the, the merger, the attempted merger between um, Arm and NVIDIA, I've never really said their name out loud. NVIDIA. NVIDIA um, is also a loss for front of the show sponsor and patron of the show, SoftBank. Um, (laughs) (laughs) SoftBank owns Arm, in case any of you forgot. And SoftBank was in a position um, where uh, Elliot Singer Management, or or Elliot Management, which is Paul Singer's uh, vulture fund, uh, basically, like, had them by the balls and say, like, you need to buy tens of billions of dollars of sh- uh, shares back. I don't give a fuck how you do it. Just do it. And one of the ways that they did it was they were going to sell ARM for $40 billion and then spend a giant lion's share of that on buying stocks back and maybe going private. And now, you know, one indirect consequence of that merger getting blocked is we we will likely continue to see uh, Paul Singer beat the shit out of Masayoshi son. <laughs> 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 um, so two for two, you know, I, I really cannot complain. Um, but I also can't complain because this is a big, first big antitrust enforcement action. It is mass. It's massive, both in terms of the size of the deal, but also because of the implications that the merger would have. And also because of the precedent it might set, too, if it successfully um, stops this merger. Which you know we'll all we'll dive into here today. Yeah, absolutely. And you know it's important to note that we are in the midst of what's being called a merger surge. Uh, so just this year, between January and August of 2021, there have been 1.8 trillion dollars of corporate mergers happening. Like there is just a uh, an insane amount of consolidation and centralization happening in the corporate world. Uh, you know, and that's just tech, right? Like that's that's a lot of that is happening uh, just in the tech sector. And, and and you know, in addition to acquisitions, there is just like you know, big tech companies are acquiring you know smaller and middle, uh, like mid you know mid level firms like like crazy. Um, and so no, you're exactly right here, Edward. The, you know the fact that this is this is Lena Khan's like first big antitrust lawsuit. On that she is initiating, right? Not not cases that she has inherited from previous chairs and commissioners of the uh, FTC, but this is the first big anti-monopoly move that she is initiating. And I think it, you know, it speaks volumes that it's targeting consolidation in the semiconductor firms. Um, you know, we taught we had episodes about the the geopolitics of. Uh, the semiconductor industry and the importance of semiconductors, you know, looking at the chip shortage that's happening, uh, you know, looking at the consolidation of the production and design of, of semiconductors. 
And, you know, importantly, this is a, you know, this deal between NVIDIA and ARM is estimated at $75 billion, uh, just a massive fucking merger. And it's a, it's importantly as well, it's a, um, it's critical. And I think one of the reasons why Khan has really set her sights on it because it's a vertical integration. And we'll get into this when we start digging into a, a very long and very important paper that Khan wrote on um, structural separation and, and uh, platforms and commerce. But, you know, this is a vertical integration where NVIDIA uh, is, you know, widely known as uh, uh, one of the big producers of graphics cards for gaming consoles and, um, you know, high-end gaming PCs. Uh, and as, you know, shifted more more recently into being a, a kind of broader supplier of microchips, whereas ARM, which is a, you know, a British firm owned by, as Ed mentioned, you know, friend of the show, SoftBank, Masayoshi-san, what up? Um, ARM is a major designer of these chips uh, that are used in, you know, not only products and devices uh, like cell phones and automobiles, but also infrastructure like data centers. And, and so this is a vertical integration where you see a big producer of microchips looking to merge with a big designer of microchips. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, producers like NVIDIA rely on uh, designers like ARM for licensing the intellectual property um, around computer chips, right? Like we, you know, we don't need to rehash it because we did a whole episode on it, but so much of the, uh, there, there is this big separation in the semiconductor industry between those who make and those who design. And, and companies like ARM are largely intellectual property holders, right? That's mm -hmm. their bread and butter is just owning, you know, creating and owning IP and then licensing that to other firms. You know, ARM is often called the Switzerland of the semiconductor industry because they'll just license chips to anybody, right? If you, if you pay for the license, you get access to it. If there were a merger and a vertical integration between NVIDIA and ARM, and, you know, so a lot of this good reporting uh, that we're talking about is coming from a, an American American Prospect article by David Dayan that really dives into this, uh, you know, as, as he puts it, NVIDIA and ARM are not in competition with one, one another, but are complementary. This is known as a vertical merger, and these kinds of acquisitions were hardly ever challenged in past years. But common sense dictates why it's so important that Khan's FTC is breaking with that practice and signaling more vertical merger enforcement in the future. And, you know, part of the worry here um, is that ARM might stop licensing uh, chip designs to other companies if they're, you know, if they merge with NVIDIA, um, which, you know, is anti-competitive practice, as well as uh, NVIDIA would, would acquire a lot of really invaluable and perhaps proprietary data on its competitors um, because ARM has licensed chips to practically all of them and has a lot of uh, market intelligence and market data about um, other companies and about the uh, the industry as a whole that would, again, really consolidate NVIDIA's uh, place as a producer in the sector. Yeah, I think, you know, the FTC com uh, complaint, I'll read a little bit from there because I think it also does a really good job of laying out, you know, uh, the summary of the issues and then a bit of background onto why this deal matters too, right? As as Jathan has been laying out. 
So I'll just read, you know, starting out from here, the proposed acquisition will substantially lessen competition in multiple markets because it will create a combined firm that has both the ability and the incentive to use its control of ARM to diminish competition by undermining NVIDIA's rivals. Post-acquisition, NVIDIA will have the ability to disadvantage its rivals through its control of ARM through various mechanisms, including by manipulating levers such as ARM's pricing, the terms and timing of access to ARM's processor technology, which is, uh, to back up a little bit, ARM's processor technology is, uh, you know, ARM develops and licenses CPU designs and architectures, which is the ARM processor technology. And these are specific designs for uh, CPUs that are licensed and then an instruction set architecture that is licensed to anyone who wants to develop their own designs, right? And so this is, you know, as Jason was talking about, they do not make or sell computer chips and, or computer your devices that use computer chips. They just license ARM processor technology and the IP. So going back to it, um, by limiting, you know, they they uh, they can use levers such as the ARM's pricing, the terms and timing of access to ARM's processor technology, including withholding or delaying access, ARM's technological developments and features, and ARM's provision of service and support, among other mechanisms. Post-acquisition, NVIDIA will have strong incentives to harm its ARM-reliant rivals, in markets in which NVIDIA competes using ARM processor technology, the profits on additional sales that NVIDIA would earn as a chip supplier are generally higher than the profits that ARM would earn licensing its processor technology to NVIDIA's rivals. Here, this relationship gives NVIDIA a strong economic incentive to preference winning business for its own downstream products over licensing ARM processor technology or providing the same level of support access and investment to its own rivals after the proposed acquisition. So immediately here, this is, you know, pretty easy way to see, see it, it make, it would it just makes more sense for the firm to act anti-competitively, right? They would make more money. It's a firm that's driven by shareholder return. The, the, the obvious choice is to act anti-competitively because you will get far higher margins and profits prioritizing your own downstream products than you will by playing fair. In addition to the harm NVIDIA can directly inflict on its rivals, aligning ARM with NVIDIA will likely result in further harms due to a critical loss of trust in ARM by its own licensees, and overall investment and innovation in the ARM ecosystem will likely be reduced. Today, for example, ARM's licensees, including NVIDIA's rivals, share competitively sensitive information with ARM. Recognizing that NVIDIA would be able to misuse this information for NVIDIA's own competitive purposes, NVIDIA's rivals would be less likely to share competitively sensitive information with ARM if the proposed acquisition closes. Innovation and other pro-competitive actions that otherwise would have occurred through the open sharing of information with ARM will be chilled. The proposed acquisition also will likely further harm innovation because today, ARM regularly receives innovative ideas from its licensees across the semiconductor industry and pursues new technological developments that it believes will yield the most benefit to its business. But NVIDIA would be less likely to dedicate ARM's resources uh, toward, pro uh, toward otherwise beneficial innovative developments of ARM processor technology that would harm NVIDIA. These effects are likely to be felt through the computing industry. Among the markets affected, the proposed acquisition is likely to substantially lessen competition in key emerging and quickly developing markets for products used in data centers, including for networking and central processing, and in advanced driver assistance systems that are increasingly used in the automotive industry. Very simply, right? It may seem a merger. What does it actually matter? But the way that the way that the chip industry is structured, 
way that CPU designs are developed and innovated, the way that a technology at the frontier is chosen, and, and the way that resources are invested for research and, dev- and design, ARM plays a key role because, because it can be trusted as a neutral gr- uh, terrain or you know hollowed ground to not try to compete with people who share information with it because it doesn't compete with them, period. It just... All it does is it licenses out IP so that if you can share your information with them and you're not at risk of having it stolen, and in fact, you'll likely have an architecture developed at some point that might benefit you or that might benefit that or that, you know, ARM would use to benefit itself and offering a different product, but that, you know, ostensibly provides some innovation. And so as a result, to allow the merger to happen is to not, is to create a situation where the incentive is to undermine all of that which has been the driver of development of technological development in this industry, specifically in this ecosystem of ARM devices and computer devices, right? And then, mm. you know, a little bit, just to, just to add a little bit more, when we say licensing also, um, as I'm sure a lot of people already know, the licensing is really just fees and royalties, right? They have, they have the licenses for the architecture for the CPU designs and then for implementing them, right? And so, and this gives everybody the rights to the the rights to create their own designs, as well as the rights to use specific designs. As a result, the business model is based on incentives by all these players to either license ARM-based designs or to implement ARM ones, but also on the, again on the understanding that any information that they share is not going to be stolen, and that this would again contribute to contribute to everyone's growth because ARM as the licensor. It's in ARM's interest to ensure that everybody sells more units. It's in it's in ARM's interest to ensure that everybody expands the usage of ARM technology. It's in ARM's interest to develop an ecosystem where as many people are in it as possible, whether that's because it traps them or whether that's because it's a good product that everybody enjoys. Not to sound too much like a fucking uh, market a, a market <laughs> shell, <laughs> but this is the logic. This is I'm just speaking from the perspective of this is the logic of the model, right? It's a model that if you believe in it, it works, and the merger fundamentally disrupts it and doesn't offer any alternative that makes sense. I think it's really meaningful here as well that Linacon's first big antitrust uh, case, you know, and lawsuit is focusing not on Amazon, not on Facebook or Google. You know, that's how that's. I mean, we do it too, but that's how Linacon is often framed, right? Is this like monomaniacal crusader against big tech? Um, but you know, here, yeah, she's looking at a, a sec, a, a part of the larger, broader tech industry, but she's not focusing on the platform. She's really looking at like uh, the material infrastructure and means of production for the stuff, i.e. computer chips, uh, that actually are necessary for then going on and creating um, these other, you know, digital devices and platforms and other technologies. So, you know, she's she's not looking at the, the, the easy pickings or the surface level stuff, right? Her interest is more so in um, finding 
monopolies, finding anti-competitive practices, finding these consolidations and concentrations and centralizations where they occur, and then stepping in, intervening, stopping them, um, both, you know, in this kind of ad hoc way of like stopping a merger, but then also establishing broader uh, structural rules and remedies um, for, you know, the, the, these, these logics that are at play in the economy as a whole. The, the, I think this kind of brings us a little bit, you know, to the uh, New Yorker profile of Khan from a couple weeks ago, where, again, while this New Yorker profile was really, you know, the headline is, you know, Lena Khan's battle terrain in big tech, and it's focused on that. Uh, as this profile of her of her work and uh, of her thought and of her career uh, shows as well, like, Big tech is not really where she even started in thinking about these things. It was more looking at the growing monopolies and already existing monopolies present uh, throughout the economy. There's a really, uh, really nice kind of metaphor and quote um, in this profile from Khan where, you know, she talks about how, um, you know, to, to, you know, monopolistic business practices are not conducive to a robust and thriving economy, as Khan said. She noted that she had started her career by looking closely at the poultry industry, which was structured like an hourglass. Khan said, quote, you have millions of consumers on one end, millions of farmers on the other end, and, and they are connected by a very small number of intermediaries. I think those types of markets where you have deep asymmetries of power, sometimes on multiple sides of the market, can lead to all sorts of business practices that are harmful. I, that, I like that metaphor of the of the hourglass. If you you know, for for keen listeners of TMK, if you remember, that's also how um, Adar, you know, India's big mm -hmm. biometric system was. The architecture of that platform was designed uh, or de described by its designers as an hourglass, right? And they were they were talking about that as a good thing, right? Like, and you know, you've got. Uh, a bunch of users on uh, you know at the on one end and you've got an ecosystem of uh, of services and applications on the other end and then in the in the thin middle of the hourglass is Adar, uh, one intermediary. For them, they were like, this is the power of the platform, right? Is that it's designed as an architecture or as an hourglass architecture. And, and I think, and I like how Lena Khan not only knows that and recognizes that, but kind of, you know, flips that on its head and being like, this is the threat of an economy that is designed um, with this hourglass structure. And it's not just you know, big tech platforms, but as, as she was talking about, it's the poultry industry, it's the candy industry, right? It's like, every, you know, you just uh, start looking around everywhere as this profile of Khan talks about that she did. And suddenly you just start seeing this hourglass all over the place where, you know, lots of consumers on one end, um, lots of suppliers on the other end, and then a few intermediaries who are or who become these obligatory passage points uh, in the middle of it all. Yeah, you know, that hourglass metaphor, I've been thinking about it more and more, um, especially because, like you said, the, um, the profile of Khan, you know, is really... I think the profile of Khan does a good job of fleshing out using, also using this subject, um, the ways in which monopolies are dominating life and big tech, but misses, as you were talking about, and as, you know, we talk about a lot on this show, how deep 
um, how deeply our, our political systems are captured by by concentrated power, right? I mean, in almost every arena of life, you will you see that monopolies exist. I think this is something you know Zephyr Teachout talked about most recently in her book, uh, "Break Them Up," right? About how you can look at almost any industry in this country and and find significant con- uh, concentrated um, corporate control that has gotten worse and worse and worse and worse over time. But a kind of fanatic focus solely on um, big tech, well, you know, and and it, understandable, I think, on some levels because big tech offers like a very easy punching bag, right? I mean, we do it, we talk about it, like that is, in one way or another, a, a huge chunk of this podcast, for example. But missing that, like you know, for someone like Khan, um, there's uh, one of my favorite sections. Of this profile is when uh, Barry Lynn, who runs, who you know created the uh, the uh, Open uh, Markets uh, Institute. Which side note, I think we've also talked about this in the pod, but the Open Markets Institute is its own separate organization because it was part of the New America Foundation. But then Barry Lynn and his team criticized Google. And uh, Eric Smith basically was like, who the fuck wrote that? Who the fuck wrote that? And, <laughs> and lopped them off. Uh, but before they were previously inside of New America, and then their president, I think it was like Anne Marie Slaughter or something like that. Yeah, One of that's the, her um, name. Yeah. Anne Marie Slaughter. Yeah, which is a lovely name to have if you work in the Beltway and have anything to do with foreign policy. Just <laughs> only in America, folks. <laughs> but, um, you know, she basically was like, yeah, I don't think we're compatible. You know, it's not you, it's me. It's our funders. You got to mm-hmm. go. And so he made this thing. And and there's one part in the profile, uh, I'll read it, where they go, during the interview, Lynn recalled, he asked Khan, do you ever get angry? Does anything make you outraged? She replied, no, not really, Lynn said. I think you'll become angry while you're doing this work. There will be things you discover here that will outrage you. Khan took the job. And then a little bit later, you know, go, Lynn and Khan couldn't get to uh, seem to get lawmakers to pay attention. Quote, it definitely felt like we were on the margins of the policy conversation, Khan said. One afternoon, she looked up from an article she was reading on her computer. Lynn recalls her saying, Barry, I think I'm starting to feel angry. Right. And then it fast, <laughs> and it fast forwards a little bit to her becoming FTC chair. But one of the reasons she became angry is because I think also if you just look at Khan's body of work, I mean, one of the reasons why she was such a good researcher, you know, why she was almost hired by Wall Street Journal, um, but went for law school instead is because she understands that the political economy of this country has... Uh, it was initially one that was anti-monopolist or anti-concentration of control and, interfe- and interfering with how individuals and collectives might organize themselves. But specifically is opposed to like the recent developments that monopolies in, in large concentrations, oligopolies, whatever cartel or collusion that corporations are doing to benefit themselves is against that in whatever form it takes. Because as she's written in, you know, in the first episode, we talked about the paper she wrote with Lena Khan and, and about her own individual papers about mapping out a taxonomy of American power and the ways in which uh, concentrated economic power corrupts the legal edifice and then converts itself into political power and then further uh, contorts and transforms and corrupts the legal edifice. So that now you can't even really attack the root issue because the political economy gets warped and twisted to support 
the concentration of capital, which is operating like a vortex, like a black pole, like a singularity at the root of all of it. You know, something that parts of the profile get to, but kind of miss is that like there's this sort of almost fanatic, I think, or maybe diligent look at um, how do we put up short-term, medium-term, and long-term barriers and fetters and obstacles to the concentration of economic power and, and political power by these by these autonomous actors, by these immortal persons, by corporations, right? Uh, because when you don't, then you end up getting time and time again after four decades, after five decades, after six decades, th- them freeing themselves from the shackles. Sometimes they free themselves from the shackles because they have enlisted fanatics who really believe that they needed to be free. And sometimes they just were able to do it themselves by diligently working. But nonetheless, if you're not... If you're not obsessed with it and if you're not a zealot about it, they will f- always free themselves as they have now and as we're facing now. With And I think tech companies occupy a lot of the discussion because they're the easiest to talk about and write about and because it's very clear. And also because partly because our conceptions of the digital world aren't fully formed and, 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 and wrong in a lot of instances. And so like it is easy to just like me- to throw on to them an analysis that we want versus like, the rest of the economy, which is uh, controlled by, you know, private fiefs, essentially, in large swaths of it, whether it's, you know, food production, you know, whether it's television, whether it's cultural production, you know, whether it's communication, whether it's, you know, where you get your energy, <laughs> your power from, you know, like almost mm-hmm. anything is concentrated in the hands of a few uh, corporations, a few groups, a few conspiracies, if you will, right? What is that? Adam Smith? Uh, Adam Smith line, if you see two businessmen talking to each other, it's a conspiracy or something like that. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I think that's why, you know, like, you're t- like we've been talking about, you know, the, the profile is really good. I think it's a great introduction to Khan. I think it's also a really great introduction to like the problems in antitrust, the development of antitrust in relation to tech, because it also, I think one thing it also does get right is a lot of the antitrust discourse that the public was exposed to came at the, at, in terms of tech, right? Because tech was, the novel development and the one that most people had the most confused ideas about contrasted to what it actually was. Um, so in that instance, that's really all it, it needs to be in that sense, right? It, it helps develop a bit of the history, helps develop antitrust law, it helps develop her ideas a bit also about how to return to the old idea of antitrust law, but consistently, I think, still adhering to like big tech-centered um, analysis. And mm-hmm. that big tech in of itself is the is the real um, offender of um, antitrust laws. Yeah, and there's a, and, and you know, uh, I think Khan's work as well really shows that there's, there, you know, there's a lot of lessons that can be drawn from doing really rigorous critical analysis of big tech, which then, you know, as you've just been laying out, must reverberate throughout the whole economy um, as well. If, you know, if big tech wants to be on the vanguard of the global economy and by all accounts, you know, by all measures of market capitalization and so on, they are right there at the top of it. Um, then, you know, they, 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 they also must be the vanguard of, uh, of, of where we apply new regulations, revive old regulations, and then, you know, apply those even wider across the economy. There, there are a couple things in the profile I want to talk about before we move on to talking about this, this, uh, uh, law review paper of, of, of cons 
you know, one of the things that really stood out to me is a is is a just a a, a short little thing that I had no idea about. So it goes, you know, says quote. During the presidency of Barack Obama, Amazon's relentless expansion was largely encouraged by the government. The country was emerging from a devastating recession, and Obama saw entrepreneurs like Jeff Bezos as sources of innovation and jobs. In 2013, in a speech given at an Amazon warehouse in Chattanooga, Tennessee, Obama described the company's role in bolstering the financial security of the middle class and creating stable, well-paying work. He spoke with near awe of how, during the previous Christmas rush, Amazon had sold more than 300 items per second. And then it goes on to talk about how Amazon has a close relationship with Eric Schmidt, uh, you know, former executive chairman of Alphabet, and you know the the kind of revolving door there of of uh, of Obama uh, Obama's top aides um, and jobs at tech companies. But that story alone, I had no I had no idea about Me this either. Obama speech that he gave at a at a Chattanooga Amazon warehouse. And I'm like, what a fucking massive whiff in grand Obama fashion to be it's like. Also so, it's also so funny that like it was Obama who whiffed on on tech and on antitrust, and then Biden was like, "Let's just put them all in. Let's put all the new Brandeisians and all the authority uh, positions instead of just giving like one or two as a as a sort of like symbolic thing to the progressives." Right? <laughs> it's like you know, as they say in the next paragraph, it literally is night and day. Because of yeah. Obama, I was expecting only like one real uh, new Brandeisian appointment, and that was going to be Khan. And I thought that they would just uh, give like a bullshit um, FTC pick, a, a bullshit FCC pick, um, bullshit CFPP pick, bullshit uh, DOJ, you know, bullshit advisors. Uh, but that would just be Khan, but Khan wouldn't be able to do much because surrounded by bullshit. But no, oh, you know? Uh, I I got to eat crow, you know, and it tasted good. I mean, yeah, happily, I'm happily <laughs> eating this crow over here. I'm I'm saying I'm saying, mm -mm, give me some more. <laughs> but, but no, you're totally right because it's people like Tim Wu, uh, it's people like Jonathan Cantor, it's Lena Khan, right? These like new Brandeisians, as they're called, are you know being put in high up places in the. The profile talks about how, um, you know, there was a lot of the, the talk in the Beltway around just, you know, uh, putting in the same old stale, you know, taking people from top law firms, you know, people that represented companies like Amazon and Facebook against the government and then putting them in top regulatory positions. But it was this, this kind of, uh, push by, you know, a handful of more radical aides to Biden and politicians surrounding Biden who were like, no, this is the time to actually make your mark, to do something uh, meaningful and different. What the, the last thing I wanted to talk about, uh, Lena Khan is often called like hipster antitrust. And that, that's really some like ageist, racist, uh, sexist stuff around like, you know, it's because she's young. She's 32 and she's the chair of the FTC and people are like, Oh, you know, she's just a, a hipster, right? Oh, she's, you know, she's, she's just looking at old ideas and trying to brush them off and make them new again. And it's like, you know, but yes, that's what we need because, you know, a lot of, uh, as we talked about in, 
uh, our, our first episode looking at, you know, the thought of Lena Khan, where we've spent a lot of time going through her, you know, very famous paper that really made her name Amazon's antitrust paradox, um, which is a direct response to the overriding dominant, uh, you know, common sense and wisdom of what antitrust law and regulation looks like um, for the last, you know, uh, 50 years, really, you know, going back to the Chicago boys of Milton Friedman and the Chicago school, Richard Posner, people like that. And then really coming through in the Reagan era with Bork, who, you know, really kind of made this idea that antitrust, you know, really deflated antitrust, making it a business friendly thing, right? Uh, this consumer welfare principle. Well, as long as consumers benefit from low, low price, you know, everyday low prices, whether it's Walmart or Amazon, then, you know, then it doesn't matter. It's actually good, right? It's good to have these monopolies and these uh, concentrations in the economy. And it's taking people like Khan, who are coming at it fresh, coming at it hungry, uh, and saying, you know, this is clearly and obviously a massive failure uh, in terms of regulating and guiding the economy uh, and doing political oversight of business. And, you know, there's a quote here uh, from Khan in the profile that really stood out to me as well, where she says, quote, there's a growing recognition that the way our economy has been structured has not always been to serve people. Khan went on, frankly, I think this is a generational issue as well. She noted that coming of age during the financial crisis had people understand that the way the economy functions is not just the result of metaphysical forces. Quote, it's very concrete policy and legal choices that are made that determine these outcomes, Khan said. This is a really historic moment and we're trying to do everything we can to meet it. And I think that that is the, that's, that's it in a nutshell right there, right? These are not metaphysical forces. These are not inherent laws of nature that say the economy is structured in this way uh, because God ordained it to be or whatever, but rather they are the result of quite intentional designs um, by certain people to make the economy function in one way for some people and not in another way for most other people. Uh, and it really does strike me that, you know, Obama giving a speech at a Chattanooga Amazon warehouse is part and parcel of that idea of, you know, really saying who is the economy designed for? Who is it meant to serve? Uh, and it takes people like Khan to stand up and be like, uh, no, these are choices and we can make other choices and we must make other choices. That's the, the takeaway here. Like, as we keep saying, like the way, you know, and I think also as Stoller says in the, in the profile, as Matt Stoller says, um, uh, these, these monopolies, these specific arrangements of corporations and political and their, their political economies, they're creatures of law and policy. They're not natural. They're not divine. They're not pre-existent. They're not primordial. There are consequences of decisions by people, and they can be unmade. I think just as easily. Well, maybe not. Maybe not just as easily. You know, in <laughs> actual effort, but in the sense that, like, it will real things in this world can unmake them. We do not have to like pray for something or hope that the heavens strike them down. It's only going to happen if we do it. 
Yeah. Or if you know we we get enough um we get enough uh, fifth columnists you know to strike it down or help strike it down. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 we are you know thanks to Khan, thanks to uh, Meredith, you know we we're seeing that we're seeing that formation. The troopers okay. are in the building. All right. I mean, we've gone long. I mean, there's just there was a lot to talk about there, but there, there's a there's a big paper, a really foundational paper from Khan um, called "The Separation of Platforms and Commerce" that was published in uh, 2019, so you know, less than a year um, before she was appointed uh, to the FTC. That you know, published in the Columbia Law Review, it really lays out a lot of her legal thinking and arguments for structural separation, for doing things like uh, why mergers between, you know, NVIDIA and ARM, you know, need to be blocked and need to be scrutinized um, and not just the result of behavioral remedies, right? She kind of lays out this 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 uh, difference between, you know, a lot of antitrust enforcement uh, over the last decades really focused on these behavioral remedies, right? These kind of like post hoc uh, regulatory actions where you do a slap on the risk, you know, oh, did, did Facebook violate, uh, you know, its privacy policies? All right, well, they're going to get a fine. You know, they get a little slap on the wrist. Oh, did Google you know, rank its own services higher than those offered by rivals and uh, through a kind of search bias uh, that prevented other people from competing with Google's properties, um, you know, as they were found guilty of doing in, in, in Europe. All right, well, that's fine. You, you get a slap on the wrist. That kind of stuff, even the FTC does these or the, or the European Union does these large, uh, you know, blockbuster headline catching fines of, uh, of companies like, you know, uh, Facebook for the Cambridge Analytica violations or whatever, right? It's always a behavioral remedy, right? It's never about like changing the structure of incentives. It's about punishing uh, bad behavior after it's happened. And, you know, Lena Khan's, uh, this, this paper by Lena Khan on kind of reviving this idea of structural separation is, is essentially saying, you know, that, that can only get us so far. And it's only gotten us so far. We need to start thinking a bit more about how to change the very structure of the economy and of these companies rather than keep going in like regulatory janitors and cleaning up the mess after it's happened and and never really even finding people guilty of criminal offenses, always just having settlements with them, you know, where the company itself has to pay some fine, but there's no individuals found guilty of criminal offenses and the structures uh, of business are just left in place. And so, you know, her, her paper is really setting out an argument on one hand of how this idea of structural separation is not new, but it used to be how antitrust uh, regulatory action happened, uh, you know, at the turn of the uh, 20th century and how, you know, it's been diluted. Uh, and, and, and largely abandoned in favor of these behavioral remedies. And it, it now deserves to be revived. Uh, so, you know, th this paper of hers is really laying out, 
you know, the legal case for this, uh, a, a number of, uh, of really in-depth case studies looking at, you know, um, railroads, looking at banking, looking at television networks, telecommunications, you know, laying out these different historical um, case studies in the U.S. of how structural separation has actually happened. Through that, you know, her goal is to, as she puts it, you know, and, and as a, a a section heading at the end of the paper, you know, construct a general framework for separating platforms and commerce. So I think it's worth us kind of running through this paper and spending a bit of time discussing that general framework uh, uh, that she lays out in terms of how to apply structural separation to platforms to really get an understanding of where a dis where the lawsuit with Nvidia and ARM is coming from uh, in terms of her 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 legal thinking and what might how how it might develop further what other actions might we see coming out of Khan's FTC Ed you want to maybe give us a, a little bit of a definition of what structural separation is and these kinds of like vertical and horizontal uh, mergers and integrations. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I think the place to begin is with that question of why a structural remedy. Most of the remedies that are pursued today in antitrust law are behavioral ones. Uh, fines, fees, um, legal transaction costs that may be incurred, um, things that are supposed to deter you from deter you from acting a certain way, but don't actually remove the incentive. Like we talked about with the merger, right? With with the ARM and NVIDIA merger, there's a one if the merger were to go through, there is an incentive structurally for them to just break antitrust law because they would make far more money doing that than adhering to the law. Behavioral remedy might come in and say, um, okay, uh, if you break the law, we'll just fine you and make it as or more expensive for you to do that than to adhere to the law and and pursue and forego profits, right? Uh, structural remedy might say, we need to redesign your ability or the things that give you the ability to do that in the first place, maybe block the merger, or if the merger happens, figure out ways to prevent you from interfering in markets that specific way, right? So the structural structural remedies are especially important because today in the digital, in, in this domain of the digital platform, such is the case that a lot of these platforms have established walled gardens or pretty, uh, you know, impenetrable uh fiefs or swaths of the internet where you you know you pay to enter and you know if you're a merchant if you're a consumer if you're a producer everything in that fief is controlled by the platform and you pay fees at various points to use stay on or compete and so as a result there becomes a concern here where what does that mean for everyone who is not a platform on which all of the economic activity happens you know amazon is usually the case that we use because Amazon itself wants to become the platform on which all sort of life, um, economic life and transactions happen. Um, and also to commodify the things that are not currently put onto platforms, right? Healthcare, security, transportation, logistics, delivery, you know, groceries, labor, uh, anything you can think of, cultural production, anything you can think of would ideally be on that platform. 
And so structural remedies become important because for digital platforms, there's a tendency for them to go across various business lines, right? They can both operate this platform where everyone is doing commercial activity, but also offer their own goods and services on it, right? And again, Amazon is the go-to example here because Amazon can both have a website where you sell goods on it and also have basics products, which are clones of the most popular products and compete with them and kill them essentially, right? It can have uh, a streaming platform and also have derivatives of the most popular streaming services, uh, products and original content on there and so on and so forth, right? So this is a structure in the digital economy that allows the massive dominant elite, uh, most powerful platforms to basically compete uh, with anyone, stifle interest in competition, entrench their power, entrench their monopoly power, leverage it to kill prices, but still provide for consumers, right? So we can use very quickly this example that she establishes in the introduction of Spotify. Spotify attempts to court users through Apple's iPhone um, while Apple's offering Apple Music. In 2016, Spotify revealed that Apple blocked the application from the App Store. And, and currently, Apple has been engaged in lawsuits over how much of it, what's it take, uh, how much is it allowed to charge apps that are on the App Store? How much control is it allowed to have over the con- access that apps have in the App Store? And when it is allowed to pull them? Why is it that Apple, because it has a competing product, allowed to reject a competitor, Spotify, on from competing in the App Store? That is a structural problem that behavioral remedies are not immediately going to fix. This is something that we see in almost every other domain, whether it's the delivery uh, giants who may have other competitors come onto their uh, website, um, such as Google, right? Google may try to uh, build a, a a competitor delivery service, a search delivery service that uh, Yelp might have a problem with, that you know, a Foundum is one example might have a problem with. And it has been sued many times in the EU, in India, um, in the United States. They're considering this legislate uh, the, these sort of lawsuits. Sorry, um, where they find that Google privileges its own results, a search bias, right, pushes down competitors and prioritizes its own results or results for its own goods and services. Something again that, as we talked about Amazon, so. What are you supposed to do in a sort of situation where you have to operate onto uh, on a platform because all the com- computational infrastructure, because all of the consumers, all of the users, all of it is privately owned or essentially owned by these dominant platforms, right? Um, and what are you supposed to do when that sort of dynamic uh, poses a control uh, threat to competition, right? As, as Khan writes, at its core, the problem traces to a basic challenge posed by firms that capture control over a critical network or channel of distribution, Regulators and competition authorities have traditionally harnessed a set of tools that ensure bottleneck facilities do not disrupt, distort competition. And these include common carriage, which requires firms to offer customers equal access on equal terms, as well as interoperability, which requires networks to maintain open interface, enabling users to switch between platforms with ease. And so these are two tools that you've probably heard a lot discussed, right? Common, we should have uh, common carriers, or we should treat a certain uh, aspects of the internet or of the digital world as uh, utilities or as platforms that are that commonly carry us, so that there's no uh, there's no way for differential prices, differential schemes for access to emerge. 
and that interoperability in what in in basic or advanced forms that basically allow you to take yourself and go anywhere, take the information that you have anywhere to computing services, so that you're not locked in or incentivized to stay in a certain family or ecosystem of devices. Um, but at the same time, right, that this is not enough in uh, the digital uh, platform world because the digital platform world also allows by virtue of being on the platform, uh, a huge ream of information and insights about how you act and how you consume and how your producers act, how they produce and how they interact with other producers and what larger, what micro or macro trends may emerge in various scenarios. And so it's not such that you can simply say, we'll have common carriers, we'll have interoperability, interoperability for our devices, there are much larger problems that emerge because platforms have the ability to simultaneously compete, to discriminate, to steal information. This cannot really be defeated without an overhaul, which is structural separation, which is literally saying you are no longer allowed to operate in this business, in this market, in this line of industry. Khan writes, rather than prohibit particular business practices, separations proscribe certain organizational structures. In antitrust, structural remedies are contrasted with behavioral ones. Whereas behavioral remedies seek to prevent firms from engaging in specific types of conduct, structural remedies seek to eliminate the incentives that would make the conduct possible or likely in the first place. So a structural prohibition would not simply say you're not allowed to do this thing or allowed to do that thing. It would be a, a realigning or reframing of what a corporation of what a business is allowed to get into given X, given Y, given Z. If you own a mine, then maybe you should not be allowed to also compete with firms that are distribute. or let's say this, or reframe it this way because I got it backwards. If you are distributing, if you own like the rails, right, that go back and forth between mines, you should not be allowed to also own mines because then you can privilege your own mine and, its tran- and the transportation and the distribution of its own ore. As one example, structural separations, though, have, as a result, um, been they've been thought of as largely the tool of a very specific time of history, specifically the railroads, right? You, you know, where that example comes from. But that they should also be thought of as the, the salve that we can do now. That we understand this on some level when we talk about common carriers and when we talk about interoperability. Right? Because the, the impulse there... Right, as Con writes, is that you you often want to prohibit a dominant intermediary from competing with the business that depend on the businesses that depend on it to get to market. So while common carriage regimes prevent a firm from discriminating, requiring equal service on equal terms, structural prohibitions eliminate one source of the incentive to discriminate, and we want to eliminate the incentives completely and render them inoperable. So there's no reason to do it, and also there's not a capacity to do it which would also make it much, much easier to punish um, when a firm actually does do it. But for obvious reasons, because of how much of a total realignment and prohibition and clear bright line that would be on the ability of corporations to act. And and because they've spent the past 60, 70, 80 years slowly but surely accumulating more and more power despite uh, the limitations that were posed in them um, last century, right? Um, this is uh, been abandoned, right? And instead, there have been there's been such a reactionary interpretation of antitrust law that has narrowed the domain and the conception of what is anti-competitive, and also has uh, considered some of these structural remedies as not only not solutions anti-competitive, but also in of themselves anti-competitive. 
And so the so the goal of the papers is pretty much simply to sum it up. All right, first we're going to say that structural establishing a structural separation is necessary. How do you do that? Okay, first you have to show that the threats posed by digital platforms are much larger than what other structural remedies could address. That the amount of information, for example, that can be gleaned in, from in insights on producers and consumers is such that that typical remedies are useless and behavioral remedies are useless and structural ones necessary. And that requires you establishing or proving that the digital platforms are able to and regularly do take really detailed amounts of information, data, and insights and use it to act in predatory ways, right? And exploitative ways and anti-competitive ways. And then that is something that really, that incentive needs to be wiped out structurally. And then that information also allows for them to use really productive for them discriminatory methods that have given rise to really impressive fortunes and fine-tuned modes of extraction from consumers, but also consolidated the power and the ability to like set up barriers to entry, really high barriers to entry, or really high transaction costs once you're in the platform. And then going on from there, also saying that structure, structural separation in the past has worked and and the reasons that has worked are this or that and the third, or that when structural separation has been used and pursued, it has resulted in really good outcomes. And so going through the history to establish what has happened and also asking, okay, what do we want from markets? What do we want from these platforms? What do we want in competition? Can we achieve that? Here's why structural separation can actually achieve that. And here's and sort of a statement of like values and goals in terms of what kind of society do we want to see? What kind of markets do we want to see? And can structural separation get us there? And whether or not that, and whether or not, okay, if structural separation get us there, how do we apply it to the tech platforms? What are the real, what are the, what are the places we should cut? What are the, what are the, you know, the, uh, the business lines or the divisions or the, or the sort of boundaries that we should impose? and consider when we're separating platforms and commerce. And the lack of an approach to structural separations uh, and instead favoring the behavioral uh, remedies is also, it's the very reason why we have things like Alphabet, Amazon, you know, Meta, right? Uh, These big conglomerates uh, is Uh in part... Did you say meta? Uh-oh. <laughs> I, I, only, I only said meta to name it as a conglomerate. Uh, in the cookie yeah. jar. <laughs> <laughs> hold on. Hold on. There's a reason I said meta. Let me get to it. <laughs> Your honor. <laughs> uh, but... But the lack of structural separation is why we have these big conglomerates now um, is in part because what you end up seeing with vertically integrated, you know, sprawling corporate uh, conglomerates is that they end up um, cross, you know, one part of it, the core part of it uh, ends up cross subsidizing uh, these both horizontal and vertical integrations uh, into these conglomerates. So uh, Amazon. Amazon is massive, right? We've talked about um, just how much Amazon does, right? How many sectors, how many things they make, how many areas of our lives they touch. A lot of that is cross-subsidized by um, 
AWS, which is their core profit center, um, as well as as a, a recent report by the the Institute for Local Self Reliance, had a really good uh, report on how um, Amazon also. You know, a lot of the second profit center for Amazon is all the fees that it takes from uh, sellers and merchants on Amazon Marketplace, like an absolutely huge amount. What do they do? They use those big profits they get from AWS uh, and the rents they extract from merchants on Marketplace to then cross-subsidize um, Amazon's uh, both uh, vertical expansion in terms of the uh, production and supply chains and logistics, as well as horizontal expansion in terms of like, you know, Ring and Alexa uh, and, and Amazon Basics and all of this other stuff that they do. Um, that's only possible because there's no structural separation saying, uh, to you know, preventing Amazon from both having a platform and doing commerce at the same time, right? Same thing with Alphabet. Uh, with Alphabet, you know, Google is the profit center of Alphabet. Uh, and that's largely like, you know, it's digital advertisements uh, uh, on search. What it does is it then uses that profit to, again, do vertical and horizontal integration and acquisitions um, across a massive range of different sectors and industries. Meta, saying meta on purpose, this is, the, <laughs> I, think, I think this is one of the goals. Uh, you know, of course, we talked about how Facebook rebranded as Meta as in part a kind of PR thing. You know, that's first and foremost, obviously. But I think they are also looking at um, the model of Amazon and Alphabet in terms of thinking about how do we use, you know, how does Facebook become the profit center for this big meta conglomerate, which can, which has and can continue to do vertical and horizontal integrations and acquisitions across multiple different industries, um, across the supply chain, across the, et cetera, et cetera. All of this is to say that our lives are, con are, are, are dominated by these massive vertically and horizontally integrated uh, and expansive conglomerates that only exist because uh, antitrust regulation and policy has, has abandoned structural separation. If we took seriously the you know, these, uh, this wisdom of structural separation, there would be no alphabet, there'd be no Amazon, there'd be no meta uh, as we know it. Rather, these things would have to be separate, wholly independent companies, right? You couldn't have AWS and Amazon uh, Ring and Alexa. It would have, these would have to be separate things. And, and I think this is really important in terms of like understanding how the structure of the economy and therefore the structure of, uh, you know, these economic actors in our lives and society and politics, um, you can draw a pretty straight line from abandoning structural separation to uh, what we, the, the world we have now. Like, I think there's a pretty straight causal line that you can draw there in terms of policy and regulation. And, 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 and this is, you know, uh, this is an, ar an argument that, that Lena Khan is, you know, marshalling for why, uh, we need to revive structural separation, why we need this general theory and framework of how to apply, uh, these rules to platform, to the, Big tech platforms and beyond. beyond, beyond, beyond.
you know, the next section, she lays out a bunch of digital platforms that would probably be the subject of structural separation by speaking about their integration, speaking about how they have integrated multiple lines of business into um, into some sort of chimera, right? And distinguishing that, you know, each of the digital platforms, and I think this is also a point that Morozov makes, you know, so I hit my quota for uh, the Morozov <laughs> mentions, but this is a point he has made where big tech in some ways is a lazy modifier because the platforms, as Con writes, have different models, business models, they have different value chains, they have different primary markets. They are different kind of beasts, but they all do share a really critical feature, which is that they have dual roles in specific markets. In specific markets, they operate a dominant platform. This dominant platform hosts third-party merchants. It hosts content creators. It hosts uh, app developers. It hosts um, a variety of producers. And then it's also a competitor to these people that it is hosting, to these third parties that it is hosting. And so, you know, with Amazon, Amazon is the best example, of course, because Amazon is the dominant online marketplace, largest com- cloud computing service, uh, has a shipping logistics network. You know, as Conrad said, it's a media producer, it's a distributor, it's a grocer, a small business lender, live video game streaming platform, digital home assistant, designer of apparel, and an online pharmacy. Lots of shit. Two areas where it both serves as a bottleneck facility and competes with those relying on its bottleneck include online retail and digital home assistance systems. And so to just quickly go through it, Marketplace and Amazon Basics. Marketplace has basically what it does is it invites producers, third-party merchants to sell through Marketplace, right? This allowed Amazon to massively expand its catalog, freed Amazon from the risk of purchasing inventory, allowed it to introduce the fees that have become a significant a significant amount of its revenue. Uh, uh, I think one of the largest slices of revenue that it gets from its retail operation is literally just fees, right? I wish mm-hmm. I had the, the number on hand, but the um, the House uh, Subcommittee uh, Antitrust Report fleshed out a ridiculous number, something like 20, maybe 30%. And then the ILSR in uh, their analysis of Marketplace also pointed out that it rivals AWS in the revenue that it brings in. Uh, going back to marketplace, this has allowed this this massive expansion has played a few roles. It has allowed Amazon to become the major uh, provider of online retail, essentially, right? And it has also allowed Amazon to to massively balloon not only the share of e-commerce that it has, but uh, the fact that the merchants now rely on them and they're trapped in it, right? So Amazon charges merchants either $39.99 a month or $0.99 per item, $0.99 cents per item. Quoting here, analysts estimate that 52% of unit goods and 68% of Amazon to- uh, total Amazon sales derived from Marketplace in 2018. And the service fees, the service fees, Amazon charges third-party sellers generated $42.75 billion in 2018, which is 18% of net sales and the second largest revenue segment. The second largest revenue segment is just fees. This now then allows Amazon to enter into its position where it's then able to go into the dual role, right? Because now it sells the Amazon branded goods, the Amazon basics, right? And then it also has pushed off competitors. It also has its own private label brands. 
and uh, as a result, this this uh this this convergence allows it to generate about 7.5 billion in revenue as of 2018, and then estimated 25 billion by 2022. 20, uh, so the dual role, marketplace operator, marketplace merchant, allows them to create policies that privilege Amazon and give it greater control over who can get on, what the pricing is, and also, and this is the more important one, arguably. Information appropriation, which is one of the criteria that Khan is using in this paper to determine if structural se- why structural separation is necessary. This information appropriation allows it to effectively steal information from third-party merchants, right? In a way that would is resembles what would have happened if the ARM and uh, NVIDIA um, merger were to go through, but the same sort of uh, trust and com- and sending of competitive or uh, competitively sensitive information happened, right? You can you can essentially prioritize your own goods. If for some reason that doesn't work, well, don't worry. You're still stealing information on everybody else and and gleaning all that information and insights to figure out substitutes, right? So it even when quote even when a customer goes to market a marketplace merchant's product page, Amazon will show prominent ads and pop ups directing customers to Amazon's own products instead. The second way that Amazon favors itself is by implementing marketplace policies that allow it to become the exclusive merchant of certain uh, products. And so because of this, right, it can one way it can do this is by imposing strict requirements on becoming a licensed uh, reseller or by becoming an authorized reseller in of itself, which then means, kind of funnily enough, uh, last uh, one example, Amazon uh, signed when Amazon signed a deal to become an authorized reseller of Apple's devices, it delisted any Apple products that were sold on Marketplace Merchant by anyone who is not an authorized Apple reseller. So that's just like a very quick way that you'd be able to do that. Um, so as a result, you know, to bring it to bring it home, Amazon uses these to, this dual role to enter exclusive and semi-exclusive agreements that on their face are supposed to combat counterfeits, but doesn't actually, as we know, they're proliferating. But really it's using... It's using its ability to determine whether or not it's policing these counterfeits. And as Khan writes, it uses that as leverage against brands who might otherwise refrain from selling on Amazon. And so you can start to see by operating both as the owner and the and a competitor on a platform, there are a multitude of ways that Amazon specifically can both glean information, construct the, and structure the market, construct the market, construct policies, Right, and then revise its own retail strategy based on the insights, and then push out people over and over and repeat this to entrench its dominance. Right, this can, is a self-sustaining mechanism in of itself. And there's also Alexa, the Alexa devices, and the Alexa skills. Right, as as Con writes, Alexa is powered by apps that allow it to do tasks. These are called skills. Third-party skill developers and manufacturers are integral to Alexa because that is how it is able to operate as your home assistant while surveilling you, right? Amazon competes with all, with all the skills developers and the manufacturers, right? And so Amazon will introduce new features, dozens of new features. At this time of writing, it had an Alexa-enabled microwave, a security camera, a subwoofer, and a smart plug. I think now it's expanded to a drone, a sidewalk-embedded um, internet system, fridges, drone, um, more drones, cameras in your car, and of course the infamous Ring, which has variants in addition to the security camera on your door. We know how Amazon uses marketplace data. It is it is, it is pretty safe to assume that it uses it in the exact same way for the smart devices, which it does. It will 
yeah, for example, in 2015, it created an Alexa fund where you know so, it's supposed to support and cultivate developer ecosystem around Alexa, but really it just used it to mine product ideas and then produce them themselves, as Amazon has done for AWS. Right, Amazon got into trouble with AWS because it would have these meetings, it would string along developers, it would string along clients, it would string along firms, and then just strip mine them of ideas in the process and then dump them. Okay. I've also heard anecdotal evidence from somebody I've, I've, I've talked to who's a, a software engineer at a company that contracts with Amazon um, for the robotics in their warehouses and, and, and provides uh, you know software support and engineering support for Amazon warehouses. And I've heard anecdotal ev- evidence that uh, there is a, a case where Amazon essentially just stole the raw code um, from this company that they contract with uh, uh, canceled the software contract with them after, you know, still, you know, st- allegedly stealing and replicating, uh, this raw code. Um, but, kept them on as engineering support because essentially they're like, fuck you, we're your largest contractor. What are you going to do? Stop working for us or stop working with us? Like, and so it was just a, this kind of, you know, uh, resignation of the fact that like, all right, well, fuck Amazon just like allegedly, uh, you know, stole or replicated our code. Um, but like we can't afford to not do business with them on the engineering side of things. So I, I guess we will continue to do so. And, you know, that's because Amazon is so it's, it's a, you know, it's a monopsony, right? In a lot of cases, it's the, uh, uh monopoly buyer of goods or it's it's such a large contractor and we see how they've done this with like um like USPS and FedEx and these other you know uh delivery companies as well right like they have such power in the market that they can um as has been documented and as has been alleged just go around and fuck everybody uh you know take everything for themselves um and nobody can do anything about it uh because there's you know they're so massively vertically integrated and horizontally expansive. Sounds like we need a we need a Craig to come along with a brick upside the head of the Debo that is uh, Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> soon, soon, my friend, with a brick and by brick you mean hammer, but bricks work too. You know, I'm not opposed <laughs> to that. <laughs> and I think uh, to close out this section, um, I'll use Apple as an example because I don't think we talk too much about Apple in this way as someone in need of structural separation. At least I don't really come across it much. And that the closest that we saw was the App Store debate and lawsuit legal case with um, Epic, right? But it is an interesting one that is mentioned in this and worth considering, right? So Apple's the you know is a pretty big. Uh, provide of consumer electronics and digital services, right? Smartphones, smartwatches, desktops, laptop computers, digital assistants, music stores, set-top boxes, right? Reached a trillion dollars in the United States as one of two pretty much major providers of mobile devices, of smart devices and operating systems. So Apple has a vertically integrated model uh, combining hardware, software services, and retail. Prides itself on creating the technologies, increasing share of the technologies that are inside of its devices, uh, notable for its devices also not having uh, an operating system that works pretty much anywhere else except for the Apple devices, offers a app marketplace where third-party developers have the opportunity, quote, to reach customers and directly market its own apps in the marketplace. And it's a pretty lucrative one that made since 2008 to the publication of this article about $120 billion in total sales. So one place in which the dual row emerges is Apple OS 
app, Apple iOS App Store and Apple Apps. So the developers claim that Apple uses its model to privilege its own apps quote, by setting unfavorable terms for third parties, right? There was a complaint filed by Spotify in the EU that basically said, quote, first Apple charges Spotify and certain other apps a 30% fee on in-app purchases, a fee that, Spotify points out, Apple enforces selectively. Apple's own apps do not pay the fee, neither do many apps like Uber that are not in direct competition with a comparable Apple service. Second, Apple prevents Spotify from communicating directly with Apple-based users or marketing certain services to them potentially inhibiting Spotify sales. And third, Spotify alleges that Apple routinely rejected Spotify's app enhancements and bug fixes. To grading the product quality, it could market through Apple as Apple ramped up its competitor service, Apple Music. So in a, this, I think, is a pretty easy example to understand, but also it goes more generally, right? A lot of the times, if an app feels too close and fails to sniff test for if it resembles an, an iPhone app, or something that iPhones or, or Apple is interested in rolling out is dead. And that Apple has done this, for example, with what I know, I know if you, if you use alarms, you have that, you know, that annoying fucking uh, screen time thing, right? Um, that there were apps that used to track that as there were apps that, and are apps that track sleep, right? And whether or not you wake up in the middle of the night and all that bullshit. Um, but so one by one, they get rejected in favor of Apple rolling out its own. Rejecting the social location, planning the app, as the article points out, because it competes with Find My Friend. An important dynamic to note is that with the slowdown of the Apple iPhone sales, they have expanded services. Streaming, news, payments and fees, video games, cultural production, essentially, right? And as a result is, quote, intensified monitoring of apps that benefit and threaten Apple, created a release radar, tracks apps that uh, pose competitive threats because it has shifted slowly but surely the core of its profit center, or ideally wants to shift the core of its profit center to services, right? So all of this means that when we step back and think about it, right, our concerns are that these Digital platforms have so much power, have so much breath, have so much use on them that they can discriminate pretty easily and that they can appropriate information pretty easily to achieve anti-competitive outcomes that we have not really seen for a century, right? Drawing, uh, Conrad's drawing on a progressive era framework, one could argue that allowing a firm that controls an essential service or form of infrastructure to exploit that control in ways that enrich the firm and harm third-party dependents amounts to a problematic exercise of private coercion. Seen through this lens, this conduct presents represents the accumulation of, quote, arbitrary authority unchecked by the ordinary mechanisms of political accountability, amounting to a, pro a political problem of domination. This is the problem that Khan has talked about for a long time, the translation of economic power to political power and the corrosion and transformation of the legal edifice to codify and legitimize that transformation. And this leads us then to some of the major questions that are raised in the next few sections, right? One, are, political, are, are, are dominant digital platforms stifling innovation? Are there domination of commerce? Are there, is there domination uh, uh, or the dynamic that they have created with producers is the fact that they compete on their platforms. Is all of this killing innovation? You know, that is an open question. Is innovation being helped by the way that platforms are designed? And should we step in and actively decide whether or not they're going to be design principles, right? As it stands right now, and as we've talked about right now, one big problem with technological development is that there aren't really any real principles beyond 
capitalist returns. There's no interest in social production or social value or social usefulness, right? Or solving social problems. It is really about, can you get a return? And as a result, you have a wide variety of approaches, but they all center on finding a return. Maybe we should, should we, if we, if we care about innovation like we do and we don't, but if we do, if we're designing <laughs> markets and we care about innovation, are there certain types of platforms that just shouldn't exist? Can we see or can we find that certain types of platforms and their design ensure discrimination and appropriation that stifles innovation, that has a negative harm on innovation, that is uh, unbearably uh, anti-competitive, that has a negative effect on the consumers in, in ways that don't reinforce this sort of political this question of political domination and private coercion i mean to that point about innovation as well there you know uh there, there's a there's a lot of even venture capitalists themselves have made this case that like you know these platforms and the way that they operate and the way that they're sh- currently structured uh do choke innovation you know uh, she she quotes from um venture capitalists discuss what they call a quote-unquote kill zone around digital giants. You know, these are, um, quote, areas not worth operating or investing in since defeat is guaranteed. You know, uh, in other words, right, there's reticence to uh, invest in any kind of startup or any kind of, uh, you know, technology that might even be seen as competing against one of these big platforms like Amazon or Apple or Facebook or Google. That to me is a pretty obvious uh, example of how this, uh, th- this kind of, you know, consolidation and conglomeration, um, does, you know, stifle innovation and not only stifle innovation in the sense of like, we get less innovation, but it changes innovation, right? Changes what counts as innovation, who does innovation, what kinds of innovations receive investment and become, you know, realities in the world. If you're thinking about the health of the economy and pro-competitive business, um, then this is, you know, obviously a very important, you know, as Com puts it, this is one of these substantive cases uh, for reviving structural separation. But even if you're like us and you're like, ah, like, do, do I really care about that per se? It's important because it also dictates what kind of innovations we get and why other alternatives are just like, you know, smothered in the cradle um, because they are, you know, within this kill zone uh, around the digital uh, giants. Right, right. If VCs, if those fucking vampires are taking this into consideration, then maybe that means we should... Just in the sense of, you know, I think one thing that we've talked about and are frustrated with, why should, if, if technology is essential to our lives, as, it, as, as everyone tells us it is, why leave it to such haphazard development, especially when, by their own admission, most of these things fail? Do we really think that most of the technical developments and innovations fail because they simply weren't good enough or because of when you look at our, an economy like ours where it's everything is so concentrated in a few hands that it failed because it, it didn't get to the right people or because it was killed or because it was smothered or because one way or another it was active it was not ever given a real chance to thrive if you really believe in innovation and free markets does it not make sense to have some central part of core or central core principles from which you can plan and proliferate a digital infinity of possibilities. I mean, like, I feel like one metaphor would be like, you know, 
like with linguistics, right? Like human beings do not come into the, like come into this world like an empty vessel for learning language, right? There is a hard coded not only for linguistics but for genetics. There are hard coded limits and features and aspects of human beings in general that we're born into this world with so that we're not born as a squid or some other shit, that we're born as a human being. And also so that we can have a general capacity to learn any human language. From that vague, as of yet not mapped capacity, we have a, a, a virtual infinity in terms of languages that we can speak or you know come across, as well as like a huge morphology of like of difference between human beings. Would you like why is why is there such anathema the idea that a core set of principles or values to organize around, especially for platforms? Why is there such a core belief or an insistent belief that doing that would impede innovation when it seems like? You know, what the actual case is, is that by letting anyone do whatever they want, essentially, people eventually get enough power to do whatever they want and then they <laughs> design everything to benefit themselves. Yeah. Even cattle ranchers take care of their cattle. So I would hope that these vampires would take care of us considering that they're sucking us dry. <laughs> yeah, it's like that Ethan Hawke movie, dude. <laughs> <laughs> Where, uh, there's an Ethan Hawke movie I forgot the name of it but everyone there's like a virus Daybreakers you know exactly what I'm talking about I know exactly, exactly what you're like talking yeah, they about take, I mean, they, they kind of take care of You know, we're, we're going quite long because this is, you know, there's a lot here to dig into. We can, you know, we've already yeah, we laid ourselves out. we wouldn't and we didn't. I know, we told ourselves <laughs> yeah. we wouldn't get stuck in the weeds. Um, and yet here we are uh, stuck in the weeds. But, you know, it's good. It's good discussion. It's worthwhile. And it's important, right? It's very important and it's very incisive as well. Yeah, I think just to start wrapping us up, I want to, you know, we've already discussed a lot of, Lena Khan's arguments as to uh, why, you know, what a general framework for structural separation between platforms and commerce would look like and why it's good, why it's worthwhile. I just want to really quickly run through what she lays out as the, you know, substantive case for reviving and applying structural separation to platforms and beyond. You know, we just talked about the innovation concerns, right? This is the the first one she really lays out. You know, these innovation concerns, the way in which the, the current economic dynamics depress the incentive to innovate, you know, create uh, these kill zones, create these costs competing with digital platforms and incentives for digital platforms to further integrate and acquire um, other, you know, smaller and middle for, uh, middle class firms. She talks about, you know, what we've also talked about in terms of like extending dominance through cross financing, as she puts it, right? The, this is, you know, these are the cases where, um, you know, digital platforms are using their, you know, big profit centers to then do massive, 
expansion and monopolization in both complementary uh, sectors and industries, but also disparate ones. Um, but, you know, creating these highly concentrated uh, centralized conglomerates. Uh, she talks about the you know media diversity, right? And and this is something you know we've we've touched on, but you know in 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 short, right? Like she she says, quote: By the proliferation of information in the digital age, the age of information overload means that the firms organizing and delivering desired and valued information gain in importance. The dominant platforms have emerged as powerful gatekeepers and network distributors, in part because they serve as digital ports portals and choosing and switching among different portals entails cognitive and financial cost. Uh, and this stickiness helps explain why a portal that achieves early dominance can prove so challenging to dislodge. And it, what it leads to is a complete uh, uh, lack of diversity in terms of media, in terms of, you know, not only the platforms that we access, but the information that we see, the media that we consume, right? It's all the same thing. It's all owned by the same people. This is, you know, this is very important. Um, because this is, you know, this is something that the government itself, that, you know, uh, agencies like the uh, FCC, the FTC, right, Federal Communications Commission, Federal Trade Commission, you know, this is uh, support and advancement of uh, diverse and independent media is something that the government takes on as a as a, a important feature or important principle that it uh, aims to uphold. And yet we see a, a digital economy and an information economy where that's simply not happening because again, there's no structural separations. You know, Bezos can own the Washington Post. Okay, that's fine, I guess, you know, or is it? Uh, and and I, I think the third really substantive case that she lays out as to why um, structural separation is important, how it could be applied is in terms of system reliancy. And, and I mean, we just saw a point in case of this when uh, AWS crashed recently, right? And there was just like, all of a sudden, all this shit that is built on top of one infrastructure stopped working. You know, it, everything bricked because AWS crashed. That had me bricked up. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, it was like some Christmas vacation shit when they put, when they like plug all the lights into one plug and stack them. <laughs> I love it. I love that for the rest of our lives, instead of people doing the fucking sabotage or for now, or that the, the, the past few major outages have been like, oh, we, we fucked up. Turns out like Amazon, for example, has been telling people for years, for years, distribute your data your data centers because that way you can ensure that you do not get overwhelmed what the fuck did they do they got overwhelmed by traffic in their most important set of data centers on the east coast and came down <laughs> yeah. pressing everything <laughs> yeah and we saw this not that long ago as well when facebook went down right and all of a sudden mm -hmm. whatsapp and instagram and face like all this stuff stopped working is because there's a lot of fragility uh in mm -hmm. these like big infrastructures i saw this uh this this uh you know pretty viral tweet that just really summed it up by this guy uh vess who's a, a security and, and antivirus researcher i mean he, he tweeted you know 1970 we're going to build a global network that can withstand 
withstand a nuclear war 2021 aws is down and my coffee machine doesn't work (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah the other variant of that i love is like 1995 our name is amazon we sell books we love books here are a million books 2018 we are we were we are saddened to learn that the Pentagon has passed us over for the contract to build the war cloud. Yeah. <laughs> That's the muscular SpongeBob meme. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you know what this demonstrates uh, is because of a lack of structural separation, you can have you know uh, th- there's this corporate and capitalist tendency towards consolidation of ownership and centralization centralization of control, which overrides all other values and benefits to the contrary, uh, and 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 we see that happening in in the most uh, asinine and beautiful way possible when so much of our lives depend on like, you know, two servers, <laughs> you know, like two service providers. So, you know, this is another uh, really substantial case for structural separation to actually, you know, we talked about in the free episode, this all, all this shit about democratization and decentralization. That shit ain't going to happen if the, if uh, Facebook owns all the servers that the metaverse is built on. If AWS <laughs> owns all the servers that Facebook servers are built on, right? Like, like right. that, that bullshit dream of decentralization ain't going to happen unless we start doing something structural uh, about the, the rampant consolidization and centralization that actually exists. And, and it's not just, just about uh, economic uh, concentration. It really is about like uh, infrastructural fragility versus uh, systems resiliency. That's a key and crucial point. So, you know, I think that kind of wraps us up, right? Like those are the big substantial cases. Lena Khan lays out for reviving structural separation. She lays out as well um, some, you know, uh, other arguments about how this is also just uh, in terms of like, regulatory institutional action structural separation is much better versus this more like a uh, surgical approach of trying to go in and and you know at, at a really micro level um o- monitor and oversee every individual action from these companies to ensure that they don't run up against some rules things that are essentially impossible to enforce because of a lack of resources uh, in terms of like the FTC's ability to enforce them, but also a, a asymmetry of information in terms of like the ability of Alphabet or Amazon or Apple to just not hand over information to the government uh, to so that so that they can be you know these rules can be enforced. Instead, there's something very beautiful and elegant about the simplicity of structural separation that just says, you know, we're not going to come in after the fact and try to slap fines on you for every individual transgression. We're going to restructure it where these things just cannot happen in the first place. Reading this paper, a paper that came out in 2019 from the, you know, the now chair of the FTC, the more shit I read by Lena Khan, the more I'm like, Hell yeah. Let's go. Let's go. And and folks, we didn't even get to the framework part. We'll have to do another episode of that. I'll design a little lesson plan because that's that's the exciting stuff. You know, if she gets a chance to do that, I will. I'll do it. I'll shill. I'll shill for her. I'll (laughs) shill for the Democrats and the progressives on this specific arena. Nothing (laughs) else. 
because I fucking hate everything else they do. But I'll show you. I'll show you. Absolutely. So we got another big in for you, for for you, our dear comrades, Patreon subscribers. Uh, but you know, there, there's just this is this is good shit. This is the good shit. Um, and we will continue to keep a close eye on all this. We'll continue to come at you with a, you know a, another episode in the future around con thought, uh, you know, con mindset. That's what we're all practicing mm-hmm. here. We're practicing right. the con <laughs> mindset. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'm gonna wrap it up there. Thank you all for subscribing. Thank you for listening. Uh, and you know, we've we've got some more episodes coming down the pipeline um, before our holiday break, where we're gonna take a take a bit of well deserved time from recording content. Um, but we're giving you a bunch of really big stuff to get through, hold you over uh, during the holiday season. So until next week, uh, we'll see you then. Later. Adios.